Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. The rich young ruler comes. Jesus tells him how to be saved. He's unwilling to relinquish the Lord in his life, which is his wealth. This prompts this incredible teaching about how difficult it is for the wealthy to be saved, but all things are possible with God. And then the, the final three verses that we read through yesterday, I mean, they just are this series of powerhouse proclamations from Jesus. And I feel like each of them deserves a little bit more attention and focus. So I want to go over those three verses for the next three days. I want to start with verse 28. All right, if you need the, the bigger perspective, please watch yesterday's devotion because it reads it all kind of in its larger literary context. But here's just verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Really broad scope teachings about what awaits the disciples in eternity future. But the very first pressing question that comes up is like, okay, what about Judas? Judas would betray Jesus. Judas would be inhabited by Satan. Judas would commit suicide. Those of you who come from a Catholic background will ask this question. Okay, that is a, that is a, there, there are different categories of sin, right? There are seven deadly sins. That's not in the Bible. There are cardinal sins. That's a made-up word. There are mortal sins. Again, that's nonsense, all right? I don't mean to be disrespectful to Catholics who truly love the Lord, but that doctrine is legalism. It's nowhere in the Bible that says that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. Nowhere in the Bible. God never said it. God never said that. That is not the word of the Lord, that's the word of the dude. And you're not beholden to the word of the dude. The dude is beholden to the Lord for what he made up and imposed upon you. But you and I are beholden to the Lord. And there's nothing in the Bible that says this. Judas is, however, an instrument of prophetic fulfillment. Jesus in John 17, before going to the cross, is praying and he says, I've not lost any of those you have given me. Those you have given me is his word for his disciples, except for the one through whom prophecy would be fulfilled. When we see God harden someone's heart, we see it in Esau. We see it in the Pharisees. We see it in Judas. We see it in the beast, colloquially known as the Antichrist. In each of these instances, it's already somebody whose heart was hardened of his own volition anyway. See the teachings from Romans chapter 9 on Pharaoh, right, where Pharaoh's heart was hardened of his own volition in the majority of the plagues of Egypt. But absolutely, as is God's prerogative, God did harden Pharaoh's heart so that his glorious works might be displayed. He was set aside for himself, the nation of Israel. It's how nation, the nation of Israel came to be born. So God has the right to do this. There is the tiniest glimmer of hope for Judas. Okay, the tiniest glimmer of hope for Judas, who evidenced deep contrition that could be satanic shame, or it could be a penitent heart realizing that he is the one who had forsaken the Savior. Okay, it's not, it's not likely. The man did what he did, having been inhabited by Satan, and there's nothing in the text that describes a relinquishing of that. He does try to repent. He tries to give the money back, right? But it doesn't work. 
And so he goes out into this field and uh, he ends his own life. So Judas is one who is a fulfillment of prophecy. We know that Judas, apart from the inhabiting of Satan, is already, is already uh, treacherous. So God never hardens anyone's heart who at one point was inclined toward God, right? The Pharisees, Esau, right, we actually see Esau and Jacob reconcile later in life. The Antichrist, Judas, right? Judas, uh, uh, the Antichrist is the only one whom we biblically know for certain is, uh, the Antichrist is the only one who we, we know is bibli biblically for certain is condemned to hell forevermore. Um, there's like the tiniest inkling of hope that maybe Pharaoh bore witness to God. There's no evidence of it, but there's this tiny inkling of hope we don't know. Uh, Esau at least reconciled with Jacob, but we don't know. Uh, Judas went and ended his own life in what seemed like deep contrition, but it doesn't look good, guys. It doesn't look good for them. Matthias, through the casting of lots, the final time we see them cast lots, was chosen because he had been with them since the baptism from effectively the beginning of the ministry all the way on. These are the 12 disciples, right? Thomas, Simon the Zealot, Philip, Simon Peter, Matthias, who replaced Judas, Matthew, Jude, John, James, son of Alphaeus, James, son of Zebedee, Bartholomew, and Andrew. And they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, depending on where you read this, either in the Old Testament or in Revelation, you see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Gad, Naphtali, Asher, Dan, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So the 12 disciples would rule over the 12 tribes. These ragtag fishermen would end up ruling over in a heavenly throne room setting, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the reason for 12 disciples. It's why after Judas's suicide, they knew there had to be 12 of them, that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But did you see also in verse 28 where this all takes place? Not only are there going to be 12 disciples, you know, restored to the number 12 after Judas's suicide, judging over the 12 tribes of Israel, but this all happens, Jesus said, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. That is, that is the compass bearing for a meaningful life. That is what it means to sacrifice your life so that you might save it, to give it to God that it might actually, you might actually take hold of the life that is truly life, as Paul would write to those who are wealthy in this present age, not impertinent to the context of Matthew 19. That is where it's at and where it will be forevermore, at the renewal of all things, when Jesus is on the throne. That, that is my kind of government, man. <laughs> my faith is not in any earthly politician or governmental system. It's in the king, the king of all kings, the Lord over all lords. When he's on the throne, I know I'm at perfect peace. He's the one who will make everything new. The beauty of Washington as we see it today is exquisite to behold, but you also see signs of death even in the midst of it, stains of the original sin that affected all of creation. Paul describes it as groaning, longing to be clothed in immortality. It's all going to be made new one day, and that's what Jesus was prophesying right here. When everything is made new, everything is as you've always had this inkling it ought to be. That's when these 12 disciples will rule over 12 tribes of Israel 
and nothing will ever be the same again. Tomorrow, we'll talk about verse 29, about the sacrifices that we make to follow Jesus. I'll see you then.